We continue now where we left off last week, where we saw the adventure of the two prophets who pointed out the Antichrist. They pointed out that the Antichrist is not the Messiah, but he's a deceiver and a destroyer, and the Antichrist will end up putting them to death. He made war against them, he overpowered them, and he killed them. And we continue with the next verse. And their dead bodies will lie in the center of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So their corpses were thrown in a central street, in the central plaza of the great city, allegorically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, the same city that their Lord was crucified. With the term corpse, or ptoma in Greek, being closer to the word carcass, this term shows the fury and the hate of the beast against the two prophets. And the exposition of their dead bodies in the central plaza of the city shows the total humiliation of the prophets, something that will continue for three and a half days. The result of this ill treatment of the Antichrist towards the two prophets, to kill them and to throw their corpses in the most central point of Jerusalem for three and a half days, will have some extenuating consequences. And the first one will be that the lax, the lukewarm Christians, those who panic very easily and they are victimized by cowardice, they will lose heart. Cowardice, my friends, is a most terrible sin. I will tell you this ahead of time, and we will talk more about this towards the end of the book of the Revelation. And it will be a while before we reach that last chapter. And I'm certainly not in a hurry. I only hope that we live that long so we can cover the book of the Revelation step by step. God willing, we will see that the cowardly, they shall have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He includes the sorcerers and the immoral, but he places the cowardly first to show that cowardice is a very terrible sin. My friends, when I lose my heart and I change my stance towards Christ, that is awful. Let's be very careful about this spirit of cowardice. Let's begin to carry out some small exercises by ourselves. So when we are facing something scary, a certain threat at some point, which will force me to expel my faith to stay firm and not comply. Now, you may ask what kind, what sort of exercises could I undergo in order to fight against this spirit of cowardice? There are a number of things, many different exercises. For instance, let's say that at the end of our lessons here, something happens, a mistake takes place, and let's say we fell asleep in the back on a chair, and we found ourselves locked with a deadbolt inside the church. We happen to wake up a couple hours later, and we're all alone, locked inside the church. We are cold. Well, what do we do? Will we start crying? I'm sure 
that there are, there's a number of people who begin to cry. Someone will simply think, oops, I was locked inside, no big deal, and so many other things, so many different circumstances that we need to be ready to face on a daily basis. We need to constantly test ourselves so we are prepared to overcome anything that may be turned against us so we will not fall victims to cowardice uh, where we stand to lose it all. However, the lax, the cowardly Christians will, sh will be shaken. They will lose heart when they see the two prophets being put to death and their bodies thrown in the middle of the city in broad daylight. They will lose heart and they will deny their faith. Do you know what they will they'll think? They will think, it's all over. The game is over. The disciples of Christ almost came to this very point. Do you remember why Thomas leave? Thomas left because he was highly disappointed. How about the other disciples? The Lord said it. It is written that they were all swearing, not only Peter. Lord, I'm with you. With me, Peter? Yes, with you. In prison and even death. It is written, this night I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As far as Apostle Peter, who was insisting, oh well, before the rooster crows three times, you, Peter, will have denied me. This stood true for the other apostles as well. The same thing will happen to very many Christians at that time. They will see the two prophets dead and they will lose hope. They will think they lost the game. Look, the two prophets did not accomplish anything. They admired them. They were praising them. They were ready to follow them. But now, since they became the object of the Antichrist's revenge, they gave it all up. This is dreadful. Please pay attention to this, especially the fact that they will come to the point of denying their faith, and they will be many in this category. We see this in Luke 18.8, where the Lord said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, when I come back, will I find the true faith on earth? Asks the Lord. In addition to what we said, many unstable Christians will be scandalized seeing the abandonment of the two prophets by God. Very many were scandalized before when they saw the Messiah, who was claiming that he was the Messiah, and he went on the cross. Didn't they remember, I wonder, Prophet Isaiah and the other prophets, where Isaiah specifically talks about the suffering of the Messiah? Essentially, my friends, do you know what is the cause of this scandal? This scandal is already at work. It is the scandal of history and the scandal of the cross. The, mes the message of the gospel is of the cross. This is the scandal which is already at work. And we have three different types of scandals. The first scandal is the scandal of the cross. The second is the scandal of history. And the third is the scandal of monasticism. Three scandals. The scandal of the cross is how can the Messiah 
allow people to take him on the cross? Is God abandoning him? The leaders, those responsible for his condemnation, they were saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross so we can see and believe. They were satisfied based on this rationale that Jesus was not the Messiah. These pitiful people, they crucified their Messiah. So some of the Christians in those years, they will see their prophets and they will be thinking, why did God abandon them? People will be seeing the righteous, the saints inside history, and they will be saying, why does God abandon his saints? If they're pleasing to him, why is God let, letting these things happen to them? This is the scandal of the cross. The message of the true Christian gospel, my friends, is centered around the cross of Christ. The gospel of comfort and prosperity is not existent, or rather it exists, but it is the gospel of the Antichrist, of the devil. The true gospel is a gospel of martyrdom. Consequently, how many are those who will endure this scandal of the cross? The scandal of history. To answer your question about the scandal of history, this is when we see evil inside history to reign, to triumph, and we don't see the direct intervention of God. We say, where is Christ? Where is God? Why doesn't he intervene? Doesn't God see what's happening? This is the scandal of history. And the scandal of monasticism is that the life of the monk seems very unnatural. According to some, monks do not produce. They're not productive. You know, they are, they are simply passive. They need to be productive to, to do things, to offer things to society. Of course, these are people who have no clue what spirituality is all about and what the purpose of life is all about. But I will not expand much more at this point. Obviously, the impious will rejoice exceedingly, as we will see briefly from their actions. The pious and the seasoned Christians, the Christians of the crucifixion spirit of the gospel, they will glorify God for this testimony and martyrdom of the saints of God. They will see these two saints. They see that they gave their testimony. They were martyred and they were put to death. Glory be to our holy God. And they will be awaiting with much consolation, hope, and holy expectation the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. As you can see, the same event can have altogether different results for different people, for the lukewarm Christians, the persecutors, and the faithful. But what is this great city that will host all these dramatic events? Jerusalem, my friends. Now, you may ask, which Jerusalem? Is it the geographical Jerusalem or some other city 
name Jerusalem allegorically. And this may not be the real Jerusalem, being that we have other examples of such allegory in this book, namely Babylon the Great, this prostitute which uh, made the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. Which Babylon? Initially, when the Holy Evangelist was writing the book of the Revelation, the geographical Babylon did not exist. Babylon was destroyed. So the Holy Evangelist was obviously aware that Babylon no longer existed. So this was a metaphorical meaning. He is referring to Rome. He says, she became drunk with the blood of the saints. And historically, this is nothing else but the bloody persecutions against the Christians of that time. But all the anti-godly powers, in a general sense, are named by the term Babylon. So could this not be Jerusalem? It seems, however, that this is the geographical Jerusalem from a number of indicative circumstances. Initially, we have St. Andrew of Caesarea, and this is precisely why I read the opinions of the fathers, and I do this to fully support our teachings. I know the opinions of the church fathers can be tiring for us, but I do this so no one can accuse us of providing our own personal interpretation. God forbid. I don't interpret anything by myself. So St. Andrew of Caesarea writes, and he will abandon their bodies unburied in this Jerusalem, the ancient Jerusalem, the one which has been destroyed in the same one that the Lord suffered. In other words, in the old Jerusalem, which was destroyed by the Romans. It seems that in this city, the Antichrist will come to give rise to the royal house imitating David the king. There were God's son, Christ, our true God, was born in the flesh. So he, the Antichrist, can convince the Jews that he is fulfilling the prophetic word. I will resurrect the tabernacle of David that has fallen. So how is the Antichrist going to convince the Jews that he is fulfilling the prophecy of David? Simply by settling in Jerusalem. Because he will tell the Jews that I come to fulfill the prophecy. I will resurrect the fallen tabernacle of David and I will rebuild what is destroyed in it. Now, how is he going to deceive the Jews? Certainly not by doing this in New York City or in Melbourne, Australia, or somewhere in Luxembourg. No, the Antichrist will do this in Jerusalem. And from this, we see that this refers to the ancient Jerusalem, the specific geographical city of Jerusalem. So a metaphor does not apply here. The following reasons point to this direction as well. First, the entire scenery of the vision with the measuring of the temple refers to this city where all these events are unfolding. Second, the description of the city as Sodom and Egypt. It is very important that we understand this to be a specific city. This is meaningful because when we see all these things unfolding, 
we have not seen them yet. When we see, for example, that the Antichrist is building the temple, and St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, which temple? Which temple will the Antichrist enter? This one here? The one we're using now to hold our catechisms? The Church of the Resurrection? Never, St. Cyril says, never. The Antichrist in the temple of God? Never. But which temple? The temple of Solomon? which is destroyed, and the Antichrist will rebuild the temple, but the temple of Solomon. And, of course, this will not be built in another city, but there in Jerusalem. So when we see all these things, all these things will help us to understand the signs of the times. These are crucial developments. So the second point is that this great city is characterized of Sodom and Egypt. Initially, why is it called the great city? Due to the great name of this city, and not because it is a large area. Area-wise, Jerusalem is not a very large city, but it has a great name just like Athens. Athens at this point, it may only have three, four million people uh, living around Attica Valley. Let's say that at this point is a great city, but it is not so great because of the population, but it is a great city because of its name, Athens, the great city of ancient Greece. And here we have another great city, the city of Jerusalem. So Athens, the city of wisdom, and the other city, Jerusalem, the city out of which came the Christ, the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, the city that gave birth to Christianity. So it is a great city because of the great events that took place in it. But why is Jerusalem described here as Sodom and Egypt? My friends, the prophets use these names for Jerusalem. In Jeremiah, for instance, 23.14, we read, And all of them became like Sodom, who? The Israelites. And those that reside in her became as Gomorrah, meaning inside Jerusalem. So the prophets describe Jerusalem as Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the Holy Evangelist describes it as Sodom, spiritually or allegorically, he means Jerusalem and not another city. A third point, we have the overt observation, the statement of the holy writer that they, the two prophets, they will be put to death in the same city where their Lord was crucified. It is a well-known fact that the Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. All these factors show that the great city here is Jerusalem. But let's listen to some useful thoughts on these observations. The city will be Jerusalem because according to the most wise observation of St. Andrew of Caesarea, the Antichrist will seek to settle in this city in order to show that he is the awaited Messiah. 
Furthermore, the spiritual state of the city at that time will be like Sodom and Egypt. Why like Sodom? Simply because there will be much sin, very much sin. Why like Egypt? And this metaphorically, because Egypt had tortured the Israelites back then when they stayed in Egypt for 430 years. They made them suffer greatly. They forced them to make bricks, building blocks, to work in hard labor, to build constantly, to break them, to keep them weak because they were threatened by them. At some point, they began to throw their male children inside the Nile River and many other things. As Israel suffered from the Egyptians, this is how the new Israel, the church, will suffer from the old Israel, from Jerusalem. That's why it is described as Egypt. You want proof? Zionism, this Hebraic organization, is spread all over the earth, especially targeting the Christians. Today, undercover, tomorrow openly, and in the future, it will turn against the church openly. This is why Jerusalem is described as Egypt. The protocols of the wise of Zion may initially seem fictional, my friends. Someone would say, no, this can't be serious. This is not serious literature. Yes, my friends, it is worth reading them. And if we read them carefully, we will see that all these plans are coming to fruition one by one. This publication, which sold in almost all our Orthodox bookstores, at least here in Greece, contains a long catalog describing various methods to corrupt the nations, to destroy and corrupt and paralyze the nations. When a television programming does nothing but that, when the quality of entertainment the state of our politics, economy, education. Read and see how all these things have been instituted and infected by these masterminds. They have accomplished this for the most part. The goal is to beat the nations like a fisherman beats an octopus on the concrete, on the rock, to make it soft, to paralyze the nations. And then the Antichrist will come and proclaim, I'm here to save you. I will save you. Since the nations, after these all these years of propaganda, they will not be able to react at all, and in their despair, they will they will welcome the idea of a one-world governor. And in order to make the nations kneel to this degree, the Zionist agenda will have done its work quite well. I repeat again. This is the reason why Jerusalem is described as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, to corrupt and pervert the world and to maintain this corrupt lifestyle. Egypt, to have holding power, to maintain this agenda. If someone pays a little attention here, he will see the letter of this text to spell out this reality. And we continue now. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, and 
they will not allow their corpses to be put into graves. So the leaders of the city, the Antichrist, will not allow the bodies of the prophets to be buried in a grave. The expression, peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, is favored by the prophet. He uses this a number of times, aiming to show that this is a universal event. In other words, this is not a local subject, something that we discussed before in the question and answer period. I told you that the book of the Revelation is a universal book and not a local one. And they will see, they will watch. Who sees? All people, all tribes and tongues and nations. People see this on a global scale. All the people of earth. How do they see? How can they see? This was inconceivable for centuries. Now it's very conceivable. The easiest thing to understand, everyone can see this. They will see their dead bodies on television. This phrase, this verse, was inconceivable a few years back, vague, and it could be interpreted in a number of ways. But here we see the value of the great advice of St. Andrew of Caesarea. Everything that begins to unfold, when it comes to fruition, then it will be understood. This point is now reality. The technology is now available. How can all the tongues, tribes, and nations of people and listen, not read, not read about it in the newspapers? The text says to watch, to see to continually see this event for three and a half days. They will be seeing the corpses of the prophets for three and a half days in the center of Jerusalem. They will be seeing this with their own eyes. But how, someone could think a hundred years ago, the earth is very large. This is not possible. We can see a couple miles away and this with binoculars, but now, with satellites and television sets, we have made the earth ever so small, so people will be watching through television. But we must add that this also expresses the feelings of the people of the world. For example, today, my friends, when we have a very important soccer game, like the World Cup, this is extremely popular and of great interest. Tell me, wouldn't most people be glued to their TV set? Of course. Likewise here, the fact that all people will be glued to their TV sets and they will be seeing this event expresses the attitude of the spectators who will be eager to witness the preview of the murder of these two prophets, but also the exposition of their corpses in the city of Jerusalem. This display of their unburied bodies will remain so for three and a half days, corresponding to the witness of the two prophets, which lasted three and a half years. Three and a half years was the time of their witness, and three and a half days will be the display of their bodies in the city of Jerusalem. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. 
make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. What malicious joy. What depth of passion of evil. Through TV, as we said, they will see and rejoice and make merry. Why do you think? Because they got rid of the tormenting sermons of the prophets. So the sermon torments the conscience of people. Does the piercing sermon torment the conscience? Why should this bother an atheist? There's no reason for an unbeliever to feel reproached. Since the unbelievers and the atheists are beyond reproach, then why are they tormented? Especially since they don't believe in hell. The atheists are not tormented, and yet they are the ones who initiate persecutions against the Christians. Why is this? Simply because there is no absolute atheist. There is no absolute atheists. I repeat, man was fashioned to believe. God made us for himself. This is in relation to the image of God in all of us. This cannot be uprooted by anyone. This is inside our nature, inside our fiber. So the person who claims he's an atheist, in reality, inside him, in his subconscious, he maintains a certain fear. And when he sees that, he distances that fear, he rejoices, and he exercises his persecution precisely to be liberated from this fear. This is the psychology of the atheist men or women. So this is a very interesting development that the citizens of the earth will be exchanging gifts among them from their joy and relief. Something similar also happens with us when we have a joyous feast and we have some special food. We like to send some to our neighbors, our close friends, and they also share with us. They reciprocate as an expression of this joy. However, this was already practiced by the Jews from the time of the Babylonian exile, and we run into this in the book of Esther. Mordech instituted this feast day and along the other activities, he also had exchange of meals or gifts. So here, after the death of the prophets, the joy is so overwhelming that the citizens of the earth are exchanging gifts because they were finally free of this tormenting sermon of these two prophets, and now they have nothing to be afraid of, they think. So they can finally sleep peacefully. And while all these things will show that the evil side triumphed once and for all. Immediately after this, their joy will be shattered. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. This is the triumph, my friends, after the very short-lived victory of the Antichrist. This is the triumph of heaven, the resurrection of the two prophets. 
the great mistake of the atheists and the unbelievers is twofold. First, they deny the eschatological dimension of history. They can never imagine, they don't want to believe that history will come to an end. It is something that I finally began to understand, and I'm telling you from my own experience, many things remain mysterious in the mind of a faithful person. He asks, how can this be? And slowly, he begins to understand. So I'm beginning to develop this experience that the godless, the atheists, do not give eschatological dimension to history. The atheist feels that history existed and it will always exist. There is no end of the world, there is no end of creation, and life will always go on. This is the first mistake of the atheist. And the second mistake is the reality of the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe this or the first. These are the two huge mistakes of those who refuse to believe. Consequently, all the activities of the atheist are based on the premise of these two false assumptions. For them, the great shock will be the general resurrection. And this explains why they were so shocked when they saw on television the two prophets to stand on their feet, to resurrect, because God has planned it this way for their eyes to be glued on the set, and suddenly, when they were under the impression that their bodies would smell by now, suddenly they see them stand on their feet. This is terrifying, the greatest shock treatment to an atheist. Now, after the three and a half days, about these three and a half days, St. Andrew of Caesarea writes, the same number of days with the number of years that they preached. So these three and a half days that the prophets remain dead is close to the time of Christ's resurrection. The breath from God entered them, and so they stood on their feet. This entire dramatic event reminds the vision of Prophet Ezekiel. The reading that we hear Great Friday night included in the Matins of Holy Saturday. The prophecy that says, I prophesied according to your commandment, and the Spirit entered the bones that were scattered all over the valley, and they lived and they stood on their feet. Pay attention here to this detail or observation about interpreting. So I can help you, my friends, to understand the Holy Scriptures as much as possible. I was telling you last time that the prophecies of the Old Testament have not been exhausted. The fact that the phrase of the Holy Evangelist is taken from Ezekiel, it's like saying to us, the key, my reader, is in my pocket. Just be careful, and you will find it. In that prophecy, Ezekiel says, Did you see, O men, how the bare bones stood up? Complete men, ready, with flesh, sinews, and nerves, bones, etc. Did you see this? This is how 
I will take you out of the tombs and I will bring you to the promised land. The Jews cannot grasp this, so they interpret allegorically, saying, this is the return of the Jews, which will be a type of a resurrection, who will return back to their country of Palestine. So my friends, God uses history in order to facilitate some historical points, of course, but God is never limited to history. The prophecies are typological in character, typological meaning that they go beyond history and the specific events in history. The prophecies go beyond these various historical events and they tra transcend all the way to the end of times because God was not very interested in seeing the Jews come back to Palestine. This was of little interest to him. This event was of interest to him as a small prophecy. And since the return of the Jews to Palestine as a small prophecy was realized, then more importantly, the greater part of this prophecy, the resurrection of the dead from the tombs, will also be realized. That's why Christ said, do not be surprised, a time is coming when the dead in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and those in the graves will rise, they will resurrect. And even though the, vis the vision of Ezekiel refers to the return of historical Israel, in reality, however, the prophecy in its greater part refers to the resurrection of the dead. And this is why our church very beautifully place this reading in the matins of Great Saturday. And the key is found at this very point that the Holy Evangelist here borrows the same statement from Ezekiel. Now, let me please ask you, these things that you're hearing now, do they give you some consolation, some hope? This is the consolation and the hope of the faithful, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead, does this comfort you? I'm telling you with all my sincerity, if these things do not shake you up, if they don't move you, uh, if they don't stir you up, then why are you sitting here? You're not profiting. The purpose of these truths is to have our inner being stirred, to become excited and consoled. The feeling that we have the resurrection of the dead in front of us. However, the resurrection of these two prophets becomes the answer in the uneven war of the Antichrist against the two prophets. Here the Christians of those days could say, truly Christ is the life and the resurrection. Christ is true. However, all these happenings and the resurrection of the two prophets will present a live, wonderful, visual picture in front of everyone, believers and unbelievers, because the believers and the unbelievers will be seeing this on television, and the resurrection of the dead will become a reality for all people, for all those who died through the centuries. The dead of all the ages will resurrect. But the phrase of the evangelist is so realistic here, and they stood on their feet. We are aware of allegorical interpretation. 
to use a phrase of St. Basil the Great in his Hexaimer on Six Days of Creation. We know of allegorical interpretation, but allegory cannot be applied here. When my friends, the Old Testament writes, where the feet of the Lord stood, and his feet stood on the Mount of Olives, what feet in the Old Testament? Yes, here, the Word of God presupposes the Incarnation. This is historical reality. There where his feet stood, the feet of God, the feet of Jesus Christ stood on the Mount of Olives. Here it says, the prophets stood on their feet. This is the meaning of the resurrection. This is the realism of resurrection. For me to stand on my feet, for this reason, there's a canon that states that on Sunday we do not kneel and we don't do prostrations. So we can express our firm belief that resurrection is real and not allegorical. And great fear fell on those who were seeing them. People will be terrified when they witness this awesome miracle. Man, my friends, becomes afraid when faced with some unexpected natural action or event. The sudden breaking of glass, an explosion, all these can take our breath away. But this is natural fear. We can overcome this rather easily. The fear that men cannot overcome is the supernatural fear. This metaphysical fear which paralyzes men literally. For example, you are attending a funeral and you're on your way to the cemetery. Friends, neighbors are following the relatives and the immediate family and they're heading towards the cemetery. At the cemetery, everyone surrounds the casket and they take the cover off for the last respects and there suddenly the dead person stands on his feet. What would we do? We will probably run for cover. People will take off to the hills. But why? What's there to be afraid of? The dead person? They should be full of joy. Their neighbor, their friend is now alive. What's the cause of fear? They were not afraid of the dead person. They were petrified because they became in touch with the supernatural. The metaphysical element. This is what terrifies. The supernatural element terrifies a human being. A thief, my friends, a criminal, can enter your house, a robber, and you can keep your composure. You can pick up a weapon, a, a knife, or something, and you can manage to overcome this fear. When and if the devil appears in your room, my friends, what would you do? You will fall down unconscious. This is the essence of the supernatural fear. So the entire earth was struck by this great fear when they saw the two prophets arise and stand on their feet. Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. They heard a voice. This was the voice of Christ calling the two martyrs, Come up here. Come up here. 
this come up here is the solution of the great drama of the earthly existence. The atheists and the unbelievers could never imagine this as a solution to the dramatic existence of the earth. The heaven as a solution is inconceivable for them, just like the ancient king of Crete, Minos, could never imagine that his two political prisoners, Daedalus and Icarus, the father and son team, could escape labyrinth with wings. This is the vertical dimension that saves since the horizontal dimension cannot possibly save men. This is heaven, the vertical dimension, and the ascension of the two prophets was carried out by the royal carriage, according to St. Andrew of Caesarea. And the royal carriage is the cloud. Today, a leader of a nation sends a special vehicle, his own personal automobile, to go to the airport to pick up another important visitor, the leader of a neighboring nation. Truly, my friends, the cloud is the royal vehicle that is sent to carry the two prophets. Here, the ascension of Christ comes to mind. As you remember from the Acts of the Apostles, first chapter, verse 9, a cloud received him. A cloud received him, and he was taken up to heaven. However, this cloud is not formulated by water droplets. It has nothing to do with a natural cloud. This is the presence of the divine glory. This also reminds of the verse of St. Paul in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, and the dead in Christ will resurrect first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Many Christians today who lack faith, truly, how many Christians today lack faith in the resurrection of the dead? And this because the, they lack faith in the resurrection of Christ. He says, Christ is risen, he has red eggs, goes to the service of the resurrection, he holds a candle, and at the same time he does not believe in the resurrection of Christ. This is dreadful. And not only this, but I said it already, he lacks faith in the consequences of the resurrection of Christ being the resurrection of the dead. The very thing that St. Paul points out, if the dead do not resurrect, then neither Christ resurrected. Then our faith, our sermon, our teaching are all in vain. What is Christianity without the resurrection of the dead? Many of the people of our faith, or rather Christians without faith, who do not believe in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and based on this, they don't believe in the resurrection and ascension of the dead, will have a final proof or witness seeing the resurrection of the two prophets. What would they do then? Maybe they will believe. However, the attitude of the enemies of Christ is interesting here because it is repeated again with the words, and their enemies were watching them, and in the Greek, the verb shows a continuous action. They were watching them constantly. This was taking place for three and a half days, and 
the eyes of the enemies and all people were witnessing these events globally from the TV screens of the mass media. Verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. During the period of the resurrection of the two prophets and their ascension towards heaven, a great earthquake will be rocking the earth. This earthquake seems to be limited to the city of Jerusalem. St. Andrew of Caesarea writes regarding this, maybe this will be a real, a physical earthquake, a true earthquake, and not a metaphorical one. However, here, my friends, we see something amazing. And please pay attention, and you will see how we can develop the ability to see some things realistically or allegorically. The two prophets died, resurrected, and an earthquake takes place. When Christ gave up his spirit at the ninth hour, or three o'clock in the afternoon, on the cross, a great earthquake took place. And when he resurrected, a great earthquake took place again. Now, this was a local earthquake. This earthquake was uh, caused by the presence of the angel. An angel came and threw away the stone, and the quake terrified the soldiers who became yellow like lemon. We talked about this, uh, the contact with a supernatural or metaphysical dimension how it terrifies people, and the soldiers flee on foot to announce the resurrection of Christ. So an earthquake marked the death and the resurrection of Christ, and here an earthquake takes place with the resurrection of the two prophets. This is why we think that this may be a real earthquake. There's only one difference. In the case of the earthquake, of the vicinity of Jerusalem with the two prophets, one-tenth of the city will fall. One-tenth of the structures, they will be wrecked. Here, during the period of Christ, nothing fell, and 7,000 people will be killed, and now it is possible that these are not real numbers, but conventional or symbolic. But this earthquake comes to assure of two things. The first is the assurance of heaven that these two prophets are from God and the Antichrist is an imposter. And the second is that the earthquake comes as punishment to those who do not believe. What will the rest of the citizens do? They will become afraid and they will give glory to God. But this is a doxology under pressure. This is nothing new. Something similar happened with the centurion during the period of the crucifixion of Christ when he saw the miraculous events taking place upon the cross. After that, he glorified God. Now, it is another matter that the centurion was of a wholesome disposition and he became a martyr of our church. The centurion became a Christian and a martyr. However, my friends, 
in those dismal days, people will glorify God due to the element of this supernatural fear and not out of repentance. This is where this widespread fear leads people to. And the paragraph continues. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Of course, the time that we take to analyze these chapters is quite long. That's why perhaps you may not remember that when the fifth and sixth and seventh angel trumpeted, these were not simply described as trumpet calls, plagues, but as three woes as well. The first woe corresponded to the fifth angel, the second woe to the sixth angel, and the third to the seventh angel. The first woe passed, and because the analysis of the second woe was quite slow and lengthy, since we had the intervention of not only the locusts of the abyss, but the two interludes, and after all of the above, now the second woe comes to an end. And we now enter the third woe, which will take place with the trumpet of the seventh angel. The only difference here is that we are in the 11th chapter, and this plague essentially begins from the 13th chapter. In the interim, we have important subjects which are central to the book of the Revelation. Let no one be absent. We have the appearance of the woman with the child being chased by the dragon. The dragon is chasing after her. The fight of Archangel Michael with the dragon in heaven. The heavenly echo of the triumph in heaven. The persecution of the woman by the dragon since her child was pulled in heaven and she fled into the desert and the appearance of the beast who comes from the sea. And the beast is the Antichrist as we will see in chapter 13. As you can see, my friends, we find ourselves in the nucleus, in the central part of the book of the Revelation. But God willing, we will continue the following Sunday.